Welcome to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Satirius Johnson. Today, we head out to sea in search of whales. Our guide is Patty Schick of Hornblower Cruises. I remember looking at the other naturalist that was on the boat with me, like, is this really happening? They're, they're surfing. I've seen dolphins surf before in waves, but not these big 50-ton whales. And we'll visit Calaveras County, just east of San Francisco, once the heart of the California gold rush that attracted prospectors from around the world. They came here in search of gold in the 1800s and loved the terroir and recognized it as that of their homeland and started planting wine grapes and olive trees. That's Steve Couts of Ironstone Winery, and we couldn't have a better guide to the region. And we'll share some pro tips on traveling with your dog. It's all coming up on California Now. Welcome to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. Our mission is to introduce you to some of the amazing people and places that make the Golden State such a fascinating destination. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. With over 800 miles of Pacific coastline, California offers unlimited opportunities for surfing, fishing, swimming, or even just relaxing on the beach. But if you're ready for a marine adventure, there is no better way to experience the wilder way of California than whale watching. On any day, you don't know what you might see. Maybe a playful dolphin or maybe the largest animal to ever live on planet Earth. My guest today is Patty Schick of Hornblower Cruises. They operate all kinds of trips out of eight different ports. Welcome to the California Now podcast, Patty. Oh, thank you very much for having me on here. Absolutely. So, you know, some say whale watching actually began in the 1950s in California when Cabrillo National Monument in San Diego became known as a place to watch gray whales migrate along the coast. But of course, you can get a much better view at sea. Tell me a little bit about how a whale watching trip out of San Diego operates today. Well, most of the whale watching trips, including those we have at Hornblower, are half day trips. So it's three hours, three and a half hours. And we have a morning trip and afternoon trip. And when you board the boat, there's different size boats. At Hornblower, we have a 150-foot, really a premium whale-watching boat with panoramic outdoor views, climate-controlled indoor areas with lots of seating. And we also have three decks on our boat, so you can be up high, which is great for spotting whales out in the distance. Or if there's bow-riding dolphins, I like to head down to the bow and just get a nice close look at that exciting experience. There's nothing more exciting than seeing bow-riding dolphins. Um, But in San Diego, um, we head out of San Diego Bay. Um, We see sea lions that are lounging on navigation buoys. We may see some bottlenose dolphins that hang out in the bay. And once we get out on the water, that's where we really start our whale watching experience. And we're searching for the spouts of gray whales this time of year. Um, During the summertime, we also do blue whale trips as well. But we're looking for any spouts of any large baleen whales or maybe splashing activity that indicates dolphins are around. But uh, for the whales, we're looking for their distinctive blows or spouts. Gray whales have really nice, pretty heart-shaped blows under the right conditions. And once we spot a whale, um, our captains will get us closer to the whales, hopefully for a nice close look. Um, For lucky, whales will lift their flukes out of the water. It's a behavior called fluking. And gray whales have really pretty curvy flukes. 
And if we're really lucky, we may get some other behaviors like spy hopping, where they poke their heads above the water, or breaching. We've seen lots of breaching behavior with gray whales and humpback whales, but that's where they come out of the water really fast and crash back on the water. Right. And we may see multiple whales as well. And I would imagine you have experts or guides on board who kind of are explaining what you're seeing as it's happening. Absolutely. We're really lucky to have naturalists from the San Diego Natural History Museum on board our boat. And they'll greet guests and provide information about the whales, um, both before the cruise and during the cruise. Even towards the end of the cruise, once we head back into the bay to head back to our dock, they will give a really nice interactive presentation to really bring home all these really, this really incredible information about the animals that people have just seen. How far in advance do people need to uh, reserve a spot on a whale watching trip, whether it's with Hornblower or with another whale watching company? Um, We have people that will go on day of. It's a good idea to reserve in advance, though, I would say a week or so in advance. Um, Some people, if they're coming out here on vacation, will make a reservation a lot farther in advance. Um, But that just makes sure in case it's a really busy day out there that you're able to get on board the boat for a whale watching trip. The California gray whale is a migratory species, just like many birds. Tell me about their amazing travels, because they are kind of traveling up and down the California coast, right? Well, gray whales have an incredible migration. They travel 10,000 miles round trip or up to 10,000 miles round trip along the Pacific coast of North America, all the way from Alaska down to Mexico. So it's this really long journey. In Southern California, we're really lucky because they come right along the coast. So we have a great opportunity. It's nice and easy to get out to see them. And um, there's different in the wintertime. You have mostly southbound gray whales. Um, And then in the spring, uh, when they're traveling north, um, you're getting the mothers returning with their calves. Uh, First, you're having the adults that were just down in Mexico for courtship, but then they're traveling back up along the coast. But the last to go up north in the later spring is the moms with their calves. What other marine life might you see on a whale watch, whether you're heading out from Northern California or Southern California? Once we get out onto the open ocean, there's five different species of dolphins and five different species of baleen whales that you can potentially see. For the dolphins, we see both long-beaked and short-beaked common dolphins. They're the most common type, not surprisingly, of dolphins that we see. And we can see really large herds, which is always an exciting experience when we see a large herd of common dolphins that are just surrounding the boat everywhere you look. Um, We can see bottlenose dolphins. And then this time of year, we see Pacific white-sided dolphins. In the summer months, they tend to be farther offshore. Um, We also see, in addition to California sea lions, sometimes we see harbor seals. We also see many types of seabirds, and sometimes we see some fish like a mola mola or ocean sunfish. We'll see them hanging out on the surface of the water, and they're really bizarre but really cool fish to see as well. So there's, it's really just this treasure hunt, as I mentioned before, of opportunity for wildlife sightings. So when you see these sightings, you say there sometimes are large herds. Are, are they typically traveling in large numbers, or are they maybe smaller groups of a dozen or a half dozen? I mean... What do you tend to see when you're out on the water? Um, For the dolphins, 
A lot of times you'll see smaller groups, 10, 20, 30, 100 would still be kind of a smaller group. But sometimes we get these mega herds, or people coin the term megapods, where it's thousands and thousands. Oh, my God. Wow. Um, 5,000 or more of, of dolphins. You mentioned that there are birds as well, including some, I, I feel like I've, I've read that, that you can actually see some birds out on the water that you almost never see on land. What are some of those uh, birds that you might be able to uh, catch a glimpse of when you're out at sea? Yeah, being out on the ocean, we do have the opportunity, uh, not too far from shore, to see some of the pelagic or open ocean birds. So we may see some storm petrels or shearwaters or nerdy science techie turn is alcids or auklets or murlets, um, and also potentially some albatross as well, which they're always just so beautiful to see soaring over the water. And for albatross, we can see the black-footed or the laysan albatross. Something that you really can't really even gr- get a, a glimpse of on land, really. I mean, you can't get a sense of it unless you're actually out at sea. Yeah, when you're out at sea, you can hear it. You can hear the calls of the bird. You can hear the whoosh of the exhalation um, of the spout from the baleen whales. And even from the, the smaller dolphins, you can hear that as well. You can hear the splashes. It's just a really dynamic experience out on the water. You know, with any activity in the natural world, you never know what you may see on any given day or any given time of day. Do you have any personal favorite whale watching memories? That's such a tough question. (laughs) Um, There's so many favorite memories. But if I had to choose one, only because it was a more recent memory, that happened just last year. And I was out on a whale watching cruise. And it was a rough day. There were four to five foot swells. And it was really bumpy and windy as well. And that can make it challenging to actually spot a whale, spot the spouts of whales. But our captain managed to locate two humpback whales that were traveling together and maneuvered the boat, which was a challenge in that bumpy water as well, but maneuvered the boat so we were right alongside the humpbacks. And the humpbacks, as we got close, I noticed that they were right at the surface in the wave and you could actually see their entire bodies just beneath the surface in the crest of the wave, you could see humpbacks have these really long wing-like pectoral flippers, and they had them kind of spread out. And so it was really cool to see them moving in the wave. And I thought, oh, that's something you don't see a whole humpback whale just right hmm. under the water like that. Usually you just see their back or their blow or their flukes. Right. But to see the whole whale was really incredible. But it got better because... They went through the wave once, and then they went back and went through the wave again and again and again. This happened several times. And I remember looking at the other naturalist that was on the boat with me, like, is this really happening? They're, they're surfing. And <laughs> I've seen dolphins surf before in waves. I've seen sea lions surf before in waves, but not these big 50-ton whales surfing right. in the waves. So it was really an incredible experience and kind of shows you never know what to expect when you're out on the water. That's that's pretty incredible. Can, can you give me a, a little bit of a sense of the scale of some of these mammals that we see out in whale watching, whether it's a humpback whale or a, a gray whale or a blue whale? How big are these these animals? Well, the whales that we see off Southern California can range from the minke whales, which are the a smaller baleen whale, and they're about 20, 25 feet long. 
and they go all the way up. You have the mid-sized whales, which are about 40 to 50 feet long, and those are the humpback mm. and the gray whales. And then you get the fin whales, which are about 70 feet long, and then the blue whales in the northern hemisphere get to about 80, 90 feet long. Huge. So our main whale watching boat, Adventure Hornblower, is 150 feet long, so that's pretty much a, a good portion of the size of our whale watching boat. And it's, it's incredible seeing blue whales. They're just massive. So, so if you're traveling to California and you want to have a really great chance of seeing these amazing creatures, what are some planning and preparation tips? I mean, you mentioned that sometimes the water can be a little choppy. I, I'm sure that some people might worry about seasickness going out on one of these things. What are some of your tips to kind of make it a, a good experience? Well, we're blessed in Southern California for the most part with really nice calm conditions out on the Pacific. Um, But it's always good to take precautions, especially if you've never been on a boat before or if you've been on a boat and have gotten seasickness. Um, Just take some medicine, some Dramamine or Bonine, um, any of those medicines about an hour beforehand. And that's going to make it a lot more pleasant if it is bumpy out there. Um, You also can get cold. We're out on the open ocean. So you want to be sure to bring a jacket and and bring layers that you can dress in so that you stay warm and toasty during the cruise. And also, you want to um, wear sunscreen because we are out on the open ocean. And you also want to bring binoculars, cameras, anything like that to see the whales better and to also um, capture the experiences. But, but the best thing that you can bring is your eyes and really an open spirit for what you might see out there. Thanks so much, Patty. You're very welcome. Thank you. Patty Schick is marketing assistant for Hornblower Cruises and Events based in San Diego. You can learn more and plan your own whale-watching adventure starting on our website, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. Coming up, we'll visit the historic town of Murphy's in the heart of the Sierra foothills. But first, pro tips for traveling with your dog. For some folks, it's just not a vacation without their four-legged friend. You're listening to the California Now podcast. I'm joined now by Erin Ballinger. She's the destinations editor of BringFido.com. It's a fantastic online resource for anyone who travels with their dog. Welcome to the California Now podcast, Erin. Oh, great. Hi. Thanks for having me. You know, I know just from browsing your website that there's lots of information about traveling with your dog to California. Is the state a particularly popular doggy destination? It is probably one of our most searched um, destinations on the website because California is such a beautiful place to travel. So why is is California such a popular destination for people who travel with dogs? I'd say uh, it's largely due to the fact that um, there's this laid-back attitude that Californians have, and um, that extends to you know bringing your pets everywhere. So there is just so many. There are so many different places where you can bring your pet in California. Um, you know, from the mountains to the beaches, uh, there are hiking trails to hotels to different wineries. Um, California has a lot of different options for uh, pet owners. That's really great. So, you know, the idea behind our lightning round is to uh, get some quick pro tips for dog-friendly travel. So let's begin with getting to your destination. What's the best way to bring your dog with you to California? One of the most important things, if you're going to fly with your dog, you're going to want to book a nonstop direct flight if you can um, and fly on a a weekday when airports are less busy. Um, You're also going to need to book early and 
book your dog's tick ticket directly. Um, and instead of booking online, like we all do now, um, you're actually going to have to kind of go back in time and call the airline directly <laughs> to reserve both of your tickets um, and your seats at the, on the same ticket at the same time. Oh, that's a really good uh, tip because a lot of people wouldn't even think about calling, uh, you know, to book a ticket. But if you have your, if you have your bringing your pet, you really want to talk to that human being to make sure that everything is correct and that you can actually get a ticket for your dog on the same exact flight and everything, right? Yeah, just because they limit the number of pets, you know, per plane, um, you don't want to just assume that your pet can go because they might have already sold out for, you know, pets on that on that flight. Okay, great. Okay, so once once you arrive, what do you look for in a dog-friendly hotel? You want to make sure that the hotel, first of all, allows pets. Just don't assume that it's a hotel and they're going to accept your dog. Um, one of the good things about Bring Fido is we make finding and reserving a pet-friendly hotel very easy. Um, we only list pet-friendly hotels. And we also list the hotel pet policy, which would include breed restic- restrictions, rules, um, and any additional pet fees. So there would be no surprises at check-in. Great. So, so what are a few more pro tips for successful traveling with your dog? I always recommend bringing um, your dog's favorite toy and a blanket um, so they can cuddle up and kind of have a piece of home with them. And then a toy because it keeps your dog occupied. And if you're going to be in a car, maybe a big bone that will keep your dog <laughs> you know, very interested and um, happy you know, for the, for the duration of your trip. So basically kind of like thinking ahead as, as, as you're packing your own bag for the things you think you might need, whether it's like, you know, that uh, weather appropriate clothing or that medication you take every day, you really have to think about your dog in those terms as well. It's like, what will my dog possibly need, you know, realistically that I should have with me when I'm on my trip? It's just great to, you know, plan ahead. That's like you said, you mentioned planning ahead. That is one of the most important things for, you know, traveling with your pet. It's going to be super fun, but for you to have that awesome time, you are going to need to prepare ahead of time because there are a few extra things you're going to need to think about, um, making sure that your dog has a pet-friendly accommodation to stay at. Um, if you're not staying with friends, um, plan ahead pet-friendly restaurants you could go to, uh, some activities to make sure that your dog is, you know, engaged and gets to burn off some of some steam while he's there and also gets to (laughs) enjoy the trip with you. You know, that you're bringing your dog with you because you enjoy his companionship. You're not bringing your dog with you because you want him to sit in a hotel room the whole time. That's really great advice. Erin Ballinger is destinations editor of bringfido.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, great. Thanks for having us. Remember, you'll always find links to the people and places we mention on our website, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. You're listening to California Now. Steve Kautz describes himself as president and head janitor of Ironstone Winery, but don't let the playfulness and modesty fool you. Ironstone is one of the great family-run wineries in the state. It's located near the historic town of Murphy's in the heart of the Sierra foothills. And Steve is the perfect guide to Murphy's and the surrounding Calaveras County. He joins us today from the Ironstone Winery. Welcome to California Now, Steve. Thanks. It's great to be here. So tell us about Ironstone Winery. Well, Ironstone Winery is located in one of the most beautiful places in the United States, in the little town of Murphy's. We're 100% family-owned, family-operated. And it was a vision and dream of my parents, and I have the fortunate pleasure, along with my siblings, to run the winery. And 
be actively involved in all the activities that are associated with it. If I understand correctly, it started out as your grandparents' ranch. Is that correct? That is correct. My uh, grandfather moved here in 1940 and started out as a cattle operation. Um, And then from that point, my parents decided to plant apples. And then we got into wine grapes in 1988 and had this crazy idea of building a winery (laughs) when at the time there were only three other wineries in the entire county. Hmm. We built the, uh, what became a growing, developing project that has an amphitheater and beautiful gardens and a gold nugget, uh, cooking schools and uh, gold panning and just all these different activities that you can come and experience at the winery. And, and you're running the winery, but apparently your parents are still working there as well. So it really is a, a, an all-on family-run business. Uh, my parents are active 365 days a year, and as I laughingly say, when you have an old war horse like my dad, the patriarch, um, he just keeps on going, and he's 89 this year and still is sharp and enjoyable to be around every day. So, so what kind of grapes do you grow uh, for the wine that you make? The Sierra Foothills, what a lot of people don't realize, have the Italian and Spanish influence and uh, essentially all the Europeans from the gold rush. Uh, They came here in search of gold in the 1800s and loved the terroir and recognized it as that of their homeland and started planting wine grapes and olive trees. So as you look throughout Calaveras County, you find a lot of the Italian varieties. Everybody says Foothills, Zinfandel, and Primitivo, but there is a lot of Tempranillo, Verdello planted here, as well as the traditional varieties of Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Chardonnay. Now, now, you're not so far from the super famous Napa and Sonoma, of course. So what makes the Sierra Foothills special as a wine producing region? Really what makes us uniquely different than my brothers over on the coast that raise grapes. They have those cool days that they are so um, proud of, but it's high moisture coming in from the fog where we have a giant air conditioner called the Sierra Snowpack above us. So While we get warm days, we get these cool nights uh, during the summertime that help ripen our fruit and give us the wonderful flavors from that snowpack. So it's like a giant air conditioning. Hmm. And where they're fighting the the moisture from the um, fog, we have less than 18% humidity. So we have nice, cool weather, but natural growing conditions. And and apparently there there is there is a history of of wine making in that region that kind of died down about 100 years ago. But before that people were actually growing grapes and making wine. Is that right? It's absolutely correct. The the miners, as gold started to dwindle, recognized this as a terroir of their homeland and started planting wine grapes and olive trees. Between 1880 and 1900, Calaveras County was the largest wine-producing region in the state of California, and some of the oldest producing vineyards and olive orchards are still between Calaveras and Amador County today. So while a lot of people look at California and think of the, the traditional Napa and Sonoma as being the wine grape area of the state, the Sierra Foothills really have this rich history tied with the gold rush, tied with the fruit and the immigrants that came here that developed all of these things of creating these wonderful varieties and these wonderful wines. And what we've done is kind of bring that resurgence back since uh, late 70s, early 80s to Calaveras County with these different wine grapes. And as you look at the rest of California and they talk Cabernet and Chardonnay, we're talking about Tempranillo and Verdello and Roussan, Marsan, Muscat, and some of those classic varieties that people 
traditionally don't think that grow in the Sierras, but absolutely do phenomenal here. So, so when people come to visit Ironstone, what exactly, what kind of an experience do you have waiting for them? Well, Ironstone was built as a family destination because it's a family that runs it and owns it and is actively involved every day. When you come to Ironstone, you can go panning for gold. You can wander through 12 acres of beautiful landscaped gardens. We have a half a million daffodil bulbs that are starting to come into bloom right now. It's surrounded by the vineyards. But you can do cooking classes, you can do wine tasting, you can listen to an old antique pipe organ from 1927 that plays and we show the black and white motion pictures with the organ and accompaniment. We have a beautiful, fabulous concert series. Uh, national acts come and, and play at our venue. Uh, this year I've got everybody from Hank Williams uh, Jr. is playing to... Um, Old Dominion and country acts in and you get this just wonderful vibe of hanging out in amongst the vineyards in amongst the Sierras looking at the oaks and the pines in a real casual atmosphere listening to music and drinking wine. Sounds like a really great way to spend a a day or even a weekend. Well we have because we're located in the middle of all of our vineyards and we built it as a family operation. I think I'm one of the few wineries that has Lego building blocks and coloring books in in the tasting room itself. So (laughs) we wanted the kids to be involved. We want the families to be involved because as the European heritage family is part of the wine tasting and food experience. And we really wanted to incorporate that being a hundred percent family owned, family operated business. That's how we live our lives. And that's how we want people to enjoy our winery. So besides Ironstone Winery, what attracts visitors to Calaveras County? And just to put it in perspective, Calaveras County is is a couple hours east of San Francisco, almost like due east. So so what what brings people to the county? Well, we're one of the few places in the world that can offer you snow skiing in the morning and 18 holes of golf in the afternoon on the same mountain. (laughs) You can go whitewater rafting. You've got lakes to go fishing, hiking. The the giant sequoias of Calaveras Big Trees is still today one of my favorite places to go throughout the entire United States. Calaveras Big Tree State Park, which was actually founded by a guy hunting bears in the late 1800s, and he stumbled across this grove of giant sequoias that are some of the oldest living trees on the face of the earth. Some of them are over 300 foot tall, and it's really neat to just be able to wander through those trees and they have benches and and just sit at the base of them and look straight up at something that has been around longer than most dinosaurs uh, roam Mm. this uh, country and you know as you look at those and then you wander down to one of the creeks uh, or streams that are right there and you can go fishing and enjoy that aspect of it it makes for a really unique experience and cruising down the hill you drop into the little town of Murphy's which in 1856 was voted as the queen of the Sierras. The richest gold strikes occurred in and around the town of Murphy's. That's really amazing. I mean, so, what are some of the attractions in in that historic town of Murphy's uh, that people can visit and kind of experience a bit of that old West history? Well, Murphy's is, the entire town is about a mile long from one end to the other. You have 23 different tasting rooms. You've got 14 restaurants. You have a fabulous old history museum. 
The Murphy's Hotel is on the historical register. It's the oldest continually running bar in the state of California. So you can step foot in that bar and literally look at places where gold was weighed and drinks were served and lots of history uh, occurred in and around the town itself. Probably one of the best features, though, is our little park. Uh, Murphy's Creek runs right through the town itself, and there's kind of a little old-fashioned type park that, you know, every afternoon you'll see families down there, kids playing, and you kind of get that rustic feel of, you know, stepping back into the 1800s when you had a little bit more modernization today, but you have that really quaint uniqueness of a town that time forgot. So before we go, there is at least one other thing I need to ask about. Not only does gold loom large in the history and culture of Calaveras County, but frogs loom large as well. Yep. You know, Mark Twain was here. He wandered through the hills. He wrote a famous tale called The Celebrated Jumping Frogs of Calaveras. And everybody says, ha ha, do you still jump frogs? Third weekend in May every year, we still jump frogs. Ironstone (laughs) has a proud reputation of entering Cabernet Frog every year. Unfortunately, Cabernet Frog tends to drink a little too much wine and doesn't get too far off the pad. But um, there are some world records that are set. Uh, People are amazed and we get people from all over the world that come and jump frogs the third weekend in May. That sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) Now, now I hate to ask, but do the losing frogs face a future as an entree with a wine pairing? Oh, how could you take a part of our history and serve it as a dinner product? Um, No, we return all the frogs, all the losing frogs go back to their original ponds. Um, And we are very proud at the Calaveras County Fair that no frogs are eaten. They all go back to their natural uh, ponds and continue life as they enjoyed it before they came out on display to jump. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. No, No frogs are harmed. No frogs are harmed in the making of this uh, wine. (laughs) That's right. Well, Steve, thanks so much for joining us on the California Now podcast. I'm looking forward to visiting Ironstone Winery in person. Uh, We'd love to have you and come explore uh, Calaveras County and make sure to bring your family with you. Absolutely. Steve Kautz is president of the family-owned Ironstone Winery in Calaveras County. This is California Now. Thank you for listening to California Now. This podcast is produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe, and you can learn more about California and plan your next visit at visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. You heard Steve Kautz talk about his love for Murphy's California, and we completely understand his enthusiasm, but don't take his word for it or mine. Just check out our California Hidden Gems video that showcases the people, the wineries, and the lush landscape in Murphy's. You can find it online at visitcalifornia.com dream365tv. We hope to see you soon. <laughs>